Amen. Well, at this time, we're going to spend some time in God's Word and hear God speak through His Word this morning. If you have your Bible, you're welcome to turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be continuing our study through the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians this morning. And the title of today's message is Called Before Creation. We come today to one of the most mysterious and yet profound truths of the gospel. It's a truth that none of us would invent on our own, nor would we even be able to discern it from our own experience. This is a doctrine that we can only come to grasp because God has revealed it to us. It's the doctrine of election. Now, the term election today may conjure up in your mind thoughts of the democratic process. We're blessed to live in the United States of America. We find our polling station on election day. We cast our ballot for a political candidate, even though all of them are fallen. We've got to choose someone, the one that we believe as close as possible will follow biblical principles. It is your privilege. It's your duty to vote. I encourage you. An election is coming up. Participate in the process. Pray for wisdom. Be involved. But that's not the election that we're talking about in Ephesians chapter 1. Here we're talking about a different kind of election. The doctrine of election in Scripture is the simple truth that God has chosen certain people for eternal life. Now let's begin by getting Paul's larger picture in Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 6, where he begins and he ends in a prayer of blessing. And of course, as I mentioned last week, this is actually part of an even larger paragraph or single sentence numbering some 200 words. There's an entire thought process. And once Paul gets going, it's difficult for him to stop. So many blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. But let's focus in on verses four through six, actually beginning in verse three, where he begins his sentence, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace for which he has blessed us in the beloved. Amen. Well, in verse four, Paul says that all of God's blessings come to us in Christ and through God's calling and election. And in this passage, Paul answers three questions for us about this election. First of all, when did God choose us? Secondly, why did God choose us? And then thirdly, for what? Did God choose us? When did he choose us? Why? And then for what purpose did he choose us? So first of all, let's consider when did God choose us? When did he choose you? If you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, the Bible teaches that God started this process and he chose you. When did that happen? Well, Paul simply says in verse 4, it was before the what? The foundation of the world. Think about it for a moment. For billions and billions of years, if we dare even use the term years because time did not exist yet, for billions and billions of years, there was no universe. 
There was no earth. There was no sun. There was no matter. There was no energy. There was no time. And yet there was God. God had always existed. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, before those beautiful mountains behind me this morning were even spoken into existence, or ever God had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. But then at a certain moment in time, God spoke. And the first words to break that silence were, let there be light. And scripture says that light was. Suddenly light existed because God made it. And over the course of six days, God put in place all the building blocks of nature that we still have today. He created water. He created land. He created trees and plants and fish and birds, stars, the sun, and human beings. God made it all. He put in place all the building blocks that we even see in the forces and the processes that continue to exist, like gravity and photosynthesis, reproduction, the water cycle, genetics. We could go on and on and on. And the more that you study science, the more you appreciate there had to be an intelligent designer, a brilliant designer, one who created things with such beauty and such intricacy, and they reflect the nature and the glory of our God. God made everything, it says, in six days, and then he rested on the seventh. But before any of that happened, before he said, let there be light, Ephesians 1 tells us that God had done something else. God decided that he would set apart a people for himself. How astounding to think that even before God made man, he had already chosen that he would save man. Even before man had fallen from grace, God had already set in motion a plan to rescue him from sin and from death. This rescue plan, of course, would come at a tremendous cost. It would come at the cost of giving up his son as a sacrifice for sin. 1 Peter 1, verses 8 18 through 20 says that you were ransomed, that is, that you were purchased with a price. What is that price? Well, Peter says, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He, that is, the lamb, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. You see, Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, he already was foreknown and foreordained and set apart to be the spotless Lamb of God before God even created this universe. Christ was already predetermined to be the sacrificial Lamb and offer himself up as a substitutionary atonement. And whom would he die for? He would die for those that God had chosen, those that God had set apart. Listen to Revelation chapter 13. It speaks of a book in heaven, the Lamb's book of life, or the book of the Lamb of God who was slain. And in this book are written the names of every child of God. There must be millions of names in that book by now. But you know what? 
The Bible says that all those names were written down before God created this universe. It says that all the names were written down before the foundation of the world. Again, God had already predetermined that his son would be a lamb, and it was decreed that he would be slain even before the dawn of human history had occurred. God had done that for his glory. So the doctrine of election teaches that God chose you even before time itself. He thought of you by name. He thought of you, Fred. He thought of you, Rob. He thought of you, Lila. He thought of you, Dwayne. He thought of you, Matt. He thought of you, Shauna. I could go down the list. If you've trusted in Jesus, and so many of you have made professions of faith, if you've trusted in Jesus and being saved and forgiven of your sins, the Bible teaches he thought of you by name and he chose and set you apart even before he created this universe. That's when God chose us, before time itself. But this leads to a second question. Why? Why would God choose some for salvation? Why did he choose me? Why did he choose us? And I see three basic options of ways that we can answer that question. Three basic ways that people may think, well, maybe this is why God chose us. Maybe this is how God chose us. First of all, some might say that God chose us because of something good that he saw in us. I mean, this is, after all, how we usually make choices, isn't it? Imagine you go to the grocery store and you want to pick up some apples you head over to the produce aisle and you see all those apples and aren't we so spoiled and blessed? I think that back in March and April when we saw the empty grocery store aisles and shelves, it reminded us of how blessed we are and how much we often take for granted. But to go to a store and see shelves that are fully stocked and so much selection that is available. You don't have one type of apple to choose. You've got 30 types of apples to choose. And as you go through, you're going to make a decision, right? You're going to make a choice. You're going to elect an apple that you put in your bag and you take, to, you take home and enjoy. And what is that choice based upon? Well, for some of us, it might be based upon price. You're looking for the cheapest apples that is, that's available. For others, it might be because there's a certain variety that you like. Maybe you like sweeter. Maybe you like tart. But you're going to pick an apple because you like that particular variety and flavor. As you go through and begin to pick or look at them, you may even notice one seems to have a dent in it. One has a bruise in it. More than likely, you'll pass that one by and you'll go to the one that looks shiny and polished and healthy and tasty. And you choose the one that has some kind of intrinsic value, some kind of, of beauty or attractiveness to it. That's the one that you want, right? We often choose something because there's something desirable in it. There's something that makes us want it. Is that how God's election works? Does, does he look throughout the history of time and say, wow, I'm really impressed with that man. Well, I really want that woman on my team. Does he go through and pick out people because there's something in us that is better, some virtue or quality that would cause him to pick one and leave another one there to be? And of course, the answer is no. That can't be the answer because Romans 3.10 says, there is none righteous, not even one. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned. Not some have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even in Ephesians 2, when we get there later in this letter of Paul, he says, you, church, were dead 
in your trespasses and sins. You were by nature children of wrath. We were all spoiled and bruised, if you will. None of us were attractive that God would choose us, and yet God chose some of us anyway to the praise of his glory. There's a second possibility of why God chose us, and that's not necessarily because there was something good that he saw in us, as though some were better and some were worse, but rather many believe that God who is eternal looked down the corridor of time and saw that you would hear the gospel. And he saw that you would believe in that gospel. And so he chose you or set you apart based upon your future choice or response to his message. God is omniscient after all. He knows all things. Could it be that perhaps God chose us because we chose him? He chose you because he wanted to number you amongst those who would be saved because you believed in the message of the gospel. And it sounds so good at surface level. And it seems to let God off the hook, so to speak, so that he can't be blamed for saving some while allowing others to suffer eternal damnation. It even seems to be taught in certain passages at face value. Listen to the words of 1 Peter chapter 1 where Peter writes to those who are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. That would seem to suggest at face value that God elected or chose someone because he foreknew them or knew that they would trust in him. But friends, this argument quickly unravels when we do even the most basic of studies of the word knowledge in the Bible. The word knowledge in the Bible is not simply talking about intelligence, or information, or even God's omniscience of knowing what is going to happen. But the word knowledge in the Bible often speaks of intimacy and relationship, of setting one's affection on someone else. Remember what it says in Genesis chapter 4? Then Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. That knowledge is, is intimacy, it's oneness, it's close relationship. And again and again in Scripture, when you see the word knowledge, it's often talking about much deeper than just uh, an awareness or information, but it's talking about relationship and affection. To foreknow is to have a prior relationship with, to love beforehand to set apart, to place one's affection on. So when 1 Peter 1 says that you are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, it is saying that God chose to love you and so he set you apart. He chose to set his love upon you and so he elected you for salvation. Listen to the words of Jeremiah 1.5. This is speaking about the prophet Jeremiah who was called to ministry but God says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. You say, well, yeah, because God knows everything. So he knew that Jeremiah was going to be born. No, no, that's not what he's saying. Listen to the second half of that verse. We often have parallels in Hebrew. The first half says, before I formed you, I knew you. And the second half says, before you were born, I consecrated you. You see, to know Jeremiah and to consecrate or set him apart are 
parallel statements. It's not more than just knowledge or awareness about Jeremiah. It's saying, I chose to set my love upon you and to call you out for a special task. We, we see this even of the entire nation of Israel over in Amos chapter three. God says to the nation of Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Does that mean that God had never heard of Egypt before? He didn't know who Babylon was? He'd never heard or was aware about the Amorites or the Amalekites or the Philistines or any of those other nations? No, of course not. It's not saying that he only knew about one nation. It's saying he chose to love one nation, to set them apart and to set his affection upon them. Not only is it based upon an understanding of the biblical word know, knowledge or foreknowledge. But if you truly understand the condition of us as human beings, you will quickly realize it's impossible for us to choose God apart from him first choosing us. Again, the Bible says that we were dead in our trespasses. We were part of the domain of darkness. No one comes to God apart from him him acting and, and choosing us. So just by understanding who we are as human beings who have fallen short of the glory of God, we have to recognize God didn't choose us because there was some intrinsic worth or value or goodness in us or even because we just voluntarily chose him, but rather he chose us simply out of his love because he foreloved us, he, he foreknew us. And so that brings us to the third option of why God chose us, not because there was something good that he saw in us and not because he simply looked down the corridors of time and saw that we would freely and voluntarily choose him of our own initiative, but rather, thirdly, God chose us long ago simply out of his sovereign grace and steadfast love. God chose us before the foundation of the world simply out of his sovereign grace and steadfast love. This must be the case when we look at the larger context of verses 5 and 6 and 11 and so forth. It says in verse 5 that God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, listen, according to the purpose of his will, right? You go down a little bit further, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. You look at verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You see, salvation is God's from beginning to end. Why? So that, as verse 12 says, we would be to the praise of his glory. Or as it says in verse 14, to the praise of his glory. God chose us for the praise of his glorious grace. He chose us simply out of his great love, an unconditional love. It's the same reason that God chose Israel in the Old Testament. Listen to the words of Deuteronomy chapter 7, where God explains to Israel as they prepare to go into the promised land why he chose them and none of the other nations. Why he knew them or set his love upon them. Deuteronomy 7 says, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. 
The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other peoples that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. In other words, God says, Israel, I chose to love you simply because I chose to love you. That's the reason. I loved you because I loved you. I chose you because I chose you. I did it out of the kind purposes of my glorious will. Romans 9, 11 teaches the same thing. God chose Jacob to be the inheritance and territory of the promises that God had made to Abraham before him. God chose Jacob and looked over Esau. It says, though they were not yet even born and had done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Jesus even says of his disciples in John 15, he says, you did not choose me, but I've chosen you that you should go and bear fruit. So when you heard the gospel and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, did you choose to trust in Jesus? Yes. You voluntarily chose to trust in Jesus You saw the truth of the gospel. The scales fell off and you clung to Christ. You you believed in Jesus and repented of your sins. But the question is, did your choice of Christ, was it the cause of God's choice of you or was it the result of God's choice of you? And I would say it was the latter. Your choice of Christ was a result of God's choice of you. You chose him because he first chose you. You love him because he first loved you. I've had friends over the years say this is a a foreign doctrine. This is unbiblical. This is not the true Baptist way. But this is in fact what nearly all early Baptists believed. Listen to the words of the London Baptist Confession written all the way back in 1689. Listen carefully. This was written several hundred years ago. They wrote and thought a little bit differently than we do now. But listen and see if you can't detect this theme of God's unconditional election as it was written back in the 17th century. God has decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things that come to pass. He has not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future or as that which would come to pass. By the decree of God, some men and angels are predestined or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. Others are left to act in their sin to their just condemnation to the praise of his glorious justice. Their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. And that statement from the London Baptist Confession, that served as the doctrinal foundation for the Southern Baptist Convention that would be formed some 150 years later. One of the leading theologians of the SBC, the founder of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, he wrote an abstract of theology and he says this, God of his own purpose 
has from eternity determined to save a definite number of mankind as individuals, not for or because of any merit or works of theirs, nor of any value to him of them, but of his own good pleasure, simply because he was pleased to so choose. Amen. And then, of course, we have the great Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon gives us a helpful word picture as we think about this weighty and profound doctrine. He says, imagine there are 20 beggars in the street, and I determine to give one of those beggars a shilling. Will anyone say that I determined to give him a shilling, that I elected to give him a shilling, because I foresaw that he would have that shilling? He says, that would be talking nonsense. In like manner, to say that God elected men before he foresaw that they would have faith would be too absurd for us to listen to for a moment. Faith is the gift of God. Every virtue comes from him. Therefore, it cannot have caused him to elect men because it is his gift. Election, we are sure, is absolute and altogether apart from the virtues which the saints have afterwards. And so as we see throughout the centuries, the doctrine of unconditional election is a rich part of our Baptist heritage. But far more importantly than that, I believe the Bible teaches it. Ephesians 1.4 says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, and as it goes on to say, to the praise of his glorious grace. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, and now we understand that word foreknowledge a little bit better, right? Those whom he foreknew or he appointed and set his love on ahead of time, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. But I think perhaps 2 Timothy 1.9 says it most succinctly. It says there that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. When did God choose us? Before the very foundation of the world. Why did God choose us? Simply for his glory and according to the kind intention of his will. What did God choose us for? For what did God choose us? Well, we find the answer to this also in verse 4, where it says, He chose us that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Many people think of the doctrine of election as an end in itself. It's something to study. It's something to list all the verses out and to know all the different arguments and nuances and to be able to run circles around your friends and show them that God chose us, God chose us. But in reality, God chose you for something. And if a Calvinist knows all the right verses and can argue circles around his opponents, but he isn't battling sin and growing in holiness, he's missed the whole point of the doctrine. The Bible says that we were chosen to be holy and blameless. Now, I don't mind talking about election. I don't mind talking about people I agree with. I don't mind talking with people that I disagree with. I want to hear what they have to say. I want to search the scriptures like a good Berean. 
But remember that the whole point of election is he elected us for a purpose. He elected you and chose you for a purpose. He wants you to be holy. He wants you to be blameless. That word holy has already appeared in this letter already. When back in verse 1, he wrote to the saints who are in Ephesus. The saints are the holy ones. See, we don't believe like the Roman Catholic Church, there are certain people who work so hard and have so much merit and credit in this life that they earn some kind of sainthood when they die. Or later on, they're credited with sainthood by the church. We believe the Bible says every single person who is trusted in Christ is declared righteous in his sight and is already holy and blameless in the eyes of God. We are saints because of our position before Christ as holy but then we are called to walk in that holiness, right? Just a closer walk with thee. We are called to grow in holiness, to be holy as God is holy. Over in Titus 2, it says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. You see, salvation is a free gift. It's the grace of God, but it teaches us that we are supposed to renounce our former life and deny ungodliness and worldly passions. Salvation is not some kind of get out of hell free card that you just grab onto and put it in your pocket and you wait for a day you might need it. Salvation is all about living for God today. He chose you to be holy. He wants you to be blameless. The word blameless often was used to speak of sacrifices. Remember that when the Jews would go to Israel and they'd travel to the temple, they would bring a goat or a sheep, or perhaps if they were poor, they'd have to settle for a dove or a pigeon. They'd bring those animals to the temple precinct, and they'd slaughter them, and they'd watch the blood spill, and it reminded them that a substitutionary atonement was necessary to make them right with God because of their sin, because of their family's sin, because of the nation's sin, something had to die. And all of those sacrifices were pointing and paving the way for Jesus Christ, right? The Lamb of God. But remember that when they would bring those sacrifices, they couldn't go out in the field and say, hmm, which animal is limping? Which one has a disease? Which one is partly blind? Which one is kind of sickly? Oh, I'll choose that one and take that to the temple. No, God said, give me your best. Give me your first. Go and look out in your field and choose the animal that has no blemish because God deserves our best. And in the same way, he wants us to live without blemish or to live blameless lives. Wouldn't it be great to put your old life behind you once and for all? Those struggles that you have, those temptations that you deal with, the sin and the guilt and the shame? Don't you want to know that you're walking in the will of God and that you are one of his choice instruments that he grabs for every time he needs work done? God wants us to be holy and blameless, and he chose you and set you apart for that purpose. The language here in Ephesians 1 is very similar to what we're going to see later in this book in Ephesians chapter 5 where the church is described as the bride of Christ. Friends, we are not perfect yet. We are far from it. We're a work in progress. 
But the Bible says that God, even this morning, even through the proclamation of his word and through the singing of these songs and the praying and the giving of God's saints, God is washing us. He's washing us with the soap and the sponge of his word and preparing us that we would be spotless and without any wrinkle or any such thing so that the bride of Christ might be holy and without blameless in the day of God. Perhaps you're wondering this morning, how do I know if God chose me? How do I know if I'm one of the elect? You roll up your sleeve, and is there going to be a birthmark there that says chosen by God, and you'll know for sure that you're one of the elect? No, the answer is we don't know. We don't know ahead of time who the elect are. Only God does. He hasn't revealed that information to us. He doesn't know, or he knows, but you don't know which of your family and which of your friends are going to be chosen and elected by God. But Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, there's a way that he can know who the elect are. He writes this in 1 Thessalonians 1.4. He says, we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. And here's how he knows that. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. And you, church, became imitators of us, and you received the word. When a person receives the word of God, and they imitate those who are following after God, Paul says, I can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are part of God's chosen and elect. When we see the fruit of faith and repentance, we can know. Can we know ahead of time? No. But if we see a person put their faith in Jesus Christ and turn from their sins and begin to imitate God's people, we can say, I know that God chose you. And if you're struggling, am I chosen? Am I chosen? How do I know if I'm chosen? Friend, listen to the gospel and believe in the message. Salvation is freely available for you. And if you choose him, which he commands you to do, it is because he first chose you. If you love him, which I hope you do this morning, it is because he first loved you. Salvation is freely available to all people. But those who believe in the gospel, we learn as he pulls back the curtain, it's because he set his love on you even before he created this universe. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace. And so that we would have no reason to boast. You ever received a valuable gift from someone? Oh, I can't count all the times that people have shown generosity to me and to my family. What do you do when you receive a gift? I think immediately we want to say thank you, and perhaps part, part of us wants to pay them back, right? But a gift is not meant to be repaid. That's an insult to the gift giver. God doesn't want you to work hard to somehow pay back what he gave to you. It's a free gift. Because he loves you, but he calls you to receive that gift. And then you live the fruit and the result of that gift, which is a life of holiness and blamelessness and obedience. You can't pay God for that gift. You can't bribe him. You can't earn it. You simply receive it by faith and then live a life of gratitude and humility. Oh, how unworthy I am that God would choose me. 
but we will spend all of eternity thanking God again and again and again and praising him and celebrating his love and his kindness and his mercy. Who am I that God would choose me? Who am I that I get to spend eternity with God and Christ in heaven forever and all of those who've trusted in the Lord? There's there's nothing I did to deserve this. It was simply out of his glorious grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this doctrine, so mysterious, so profound, and so humbling. Lord, we know that we are not worthy. It is only by your grace that we sit here this morning. It's only by grace that we have the ability to even understand your word because the natural man cannot perceive the things of God for they are spiritually appraised. It is only by the grace of God that we were in a place that we heard the gospel and by the grace of God that somebody came and spoke the gospel to us and by the grace of God that we believed in the gospel and by the grace of God that we will persevere in the gospel. Lord, from beginning to end, salvation belongs to the Lord and we've learned this morning that it traces back to before the dawn of time itself when you thought of us by name and you chose to set your love upon us. We are in awe. We are humbled, God. And we say thank you. Help us, Lord, this day to live lives of holiness and blamelessness, to be spotless and pure, to be mortifying sin and saying no to temptation and putting on the full armor of God because you saved us for a purpose, to make your glory known. We love you, Lord, but we realize now we love you because you first loved us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's broadcast of Feed My Sheep, a ministry of Crossview Bible Church in Yucca Valley. For more information, please visit www.crossviewyucca.org. We'd love to have you come and visit us this Sunday. We're located on Onaga Trail, just a half mile west of Yucca Valley High School. God bless and have a great week.